So our journey is coming to an end. Um, over the next two weeks, we are going to wrap up the year of biblical literacy. We've taken a few breaks throughout the year, so we took a, a three-week break um, to do our series um, Weird Like Us on generosity. Um, and then um, what I realized was we spent like two-thirds of the year going through the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And the reason is is because, well, the Old Testament's two-thirds of the Bible. And then we spent four weeks on the character of Jesus um, looking at the Gospels. And then I realized there's still a lot of the Old Testament left, but it's time for Advent, and we're going to do something new. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to condense the rest of the New Testament into two weeks, and we're going to even, we're going to, so uh, if you have lunch plans, you probably should go ahead and text whoever you're meeting afterwards. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, but actually, to do this, we're actually going to condense it um, and focusing on one person and the teachings of one person. Um, a chunk of the Gospels, like 30% of the Gospels, um, are written by, uh, or are, uh, sorry, 30% of the New Testament is the Gospels. And then of the remaining New Testament, about 50% was written by one person, a guy by the name Paul. Um, Paul is the guy who takes the Jesus movement and then he systematizes it. And he essentially creates a viral movement that spreads around the Mediterranean rim. Um, and, and Paul is probably, if besides Jesus in the New Testament, Paul is the most important person to kind of wrap um, our head around what he is saying and what he is about. Um, Paul was the first church planter. He, like I said, he systematized um, the, uh, the Jesus movement, and then he wrote a chunk of the New Testament. And so what we're going to do is we're going to focus on two sections of Paul. This week we're going to focus on what we're calling the inclusive Paul, and then next week we're going to talk about the exclusive Paul. But I want to give you a disclaimer, because I would really encourage you, the writings of Paul um, don't take that long to go through. There's about 13 books that he wrote. Um, scholars are sometimes a little unsure whether he wrote a book or whether it's one of his followers or disciples, but essentially 13 books are Pauline text. And if you read Paul, there are going to be moments that you are going to be inspired. There are going to be moments when you are going to be deeply challenged by what he says. And then there are going to be moments when you are really disturbed and bothered. You're going to be disturbed and bothered by what Paul says about first century slaves, about women, and about issues of sexuality. And if we're really honest, you may even be bothered by his personality, right? Jesus is the epitome of humility. Paul, on the other hand, says, imitate me as I imitate Christ Jesus, right? There is a level of hubris to saying, imitate me because I basically look like Jesus, Paul is a controversial figure. There are two books that have been released uh, recently on Paul, which I thought I'd show you the covers of. Um, the one is, ta-da, um, the one is Jesus I Have Loved, but Paul? And, and then the other one is Paul Behaving Badly was the Apostle Paul, a racist, chauvinist jerk. So as you can see, Paul has some detractors. And Paul's writings are a bit off-putting to our modern Western ears. When Jesus comes, he announces the kingdom of God to the poor. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. His whole mission was about including people to the celebration of God's coming kingdom. The poor and the marginalized and everyone are welcome. Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed against the godless. Jesus says, love your neighbor. And Paul says, yeah, but expel and excommunicate the immoral person from your community. Right? A lot of people like to talk about how Paul ruined the Jesus movement. In fact, Paul is not only off-putting, but Paul is also just a bit difficult to understand. 
Peter, an apost- Peter, who is a dude who walked with Jesus, at the end of one of his writings, actually the last book that Peter wrote, kind of the last section of the book, he's like, dude, we love Paul. Paul has wisdom. But that man is really hard to understand. I mean, this is Peter who walked with Jesus when he reads Paul's writings. He's like, he's a bit hard to understand. And it seems on the surface that Paul is on the wrong side of some of the very issues we face in our day. But I think, and I would argue, that that's a very narrow reading of a guy who lived 2,000 years ago in a very different world. And so our reading of Paul and our understanding of Paul and Paul's letters require immense cultural sensitivity. It requires patience to learn the whole story and the backstory. And it requires a community of people to come around and learn together. And it requires effort to understand his letters. So what I want to do, as I said, over the next couple weeks is I want to look at first what I refer to as the inclusive Paul, and then I want to look at the exclusive Paul. But I want to begin with a bold claim, and the bold claim is this, that Paul's signature achievement in the early decades of the Jesus movement, the thing that he was most passionate about, the thing that he dedicated his life to was creating a viral movement of networked churches full of very diverse people. Paul's passion... Paul's passion was to create a movement of multi-ethnic, culturally diverse communities in the most strategic cities in the Roman Empire. And these communities honored each other's differences, but they also created immense, immense space for cultural differences. And even, they even created uh, space for disagreement on issues of morality. But the main unifying theme, the thing that pulls it all together, was their allegiance and love of King Jesus. Now, Paul introduced a revolution into human history that had never, a movement like this had never been seen before in the ancient world. And people had no idea what to do with these early Jesus communities that were popping up all around the Roman world. Because in Paul's day, you were born into religion. Religion was based upon your social class, or religion was based upon your ethnicity, or religion was based upon your community of origin. But, but the Jesus communities were some of the most diverse communities you've seen in all of your life. And so in an early Jesus gathering, had you stumbled into one of these early Jesus gatherings, there would have been a Greek and a Macedonian, and a Roman, and a Jew, and a Libyan, and an Egyptian, and a Cyprian. There would have been rich people, and poor people. There would have been free people, and there would have been slaves. This is absolutely unheard of. People of this diversity do not gather together. And this was, this was in many ways, Paul's crowning achievement. This is the thing that he was most passionate about. What I think is interesting in retrospect is that the guy that we as the church and, and, and our world often look upon with a little bit of dispersion accomplished something that many progressive modern folk have never been able to accomplish, which is a truly diverse place. Because what happens, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is that we continue to segregate ourselves from one another. And those of us who consider ourselves progressive and tolerant, which is most people who live in D.C., even if you're not, you consider yourself that way. And so the thing is that, that people who live in progressive, tolerant hubs 
often just begin to cloister with people who agree with people just like them. So, I mean, think about this. Think about the modern hubs where all the young progressive millennials are beginning to cloister themselves. Denver and Seattle and San Francisco and Portland. They're some of the most homogenous cities that I've ever been to, right? You, you walk in, it's interesting, you know, you walk into a coffee shop in Portland and on the door it says something like, everyone welcome here, no matter their race or creed or whatever. And then you walk in and everyone looks identical. Now, for me, it's great because they look just like me. And so, <laughs> but Paul is somehow able to do something that we in our modern world have never fully been able to do. He's able to create places of true diversity. And so what I want us to do is I want us to listen to Paul's own words as we look at the exclusive Paul and then next week the exclusive Paul. Because what I believe is that the Jesus movement always shatters the categories that we try to place on it. The Jesus movement always shatters the categories that we try to place on it. So here we are, Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of the Messiah, Jesus, called to be an apostle. Now immediately we have an interesting problem um, because we often translate words from Greek to English. Um, or from whatever language to English. But sometimes when there's an extra churchy word, we fail to translate it. So one of those words is church. The, church, the word church appears nowhere in Scripture. The word that appears is ecclesia, which is gathering. So there are Jesus gatherings that's not church. Same thing with the word apostle. Later, apostle becomes more of a title. But early on, what Paul is saying when he says, I am an apostle, all he means is I, apostle in the ancient world meant a representative of someone. So Paul is saying, Paul, a servant of the Messiah Jesus, called to be a representative, called to be a representative, who was set apart for God's good news, which he promised long ago through the prophets in the sacred scriptures. And this good news about God's son, whose physical lineage was from the line of David, this was key, we'll come back, whose physical lineage was from the line of David, and through the holy scriptures he was established as the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, Messiah, our Lord. Now, back, background. Paul, before he has this Jesus conversion, was the chief Pharisee. Some of you, if you've grown up around church, you've heard uh, the Pharisees referred to before. They're a religious set. Excuse me. They're really, I'm going to grab some water. Actually, could you grab me some more? They are, thank you. Um, they are a religious sect. Um, they're a religious sect based on keeping the law. And Paul, he hated Jesus early on, and he hates the Jesus movement because he saw it as a challenge to what he was trying to do. But then, on the road to Emmaus, Paul has this amazing experience with the risen Jesus that completely breaks and completely shatters him. And what we discover is, and what Paul discovers, thank you, what Paul discovers is that the vision that he had been living towards based in the Hebrew scriptures is actually fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Jesus was, not a was no longer competition, but Jesus was actually the fulfillment of everything that he'd hoped and lived for. See, Paul is a good Jew. Paul is a good Jew, and his message and his belief, even, in the, even when he converts to Christianity, is deeply rooted in his understanding of the Hebrew Scripture. You can't understand Paul's writings without understanding the Hebrew Scripture. In fact, Paul is so steeped in the, the Hebrew Scriptures that he's lacing it all throughout his writings. You have to be, pay close attention because he is constantly quoting from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And so for Paul, the idea is that they're the baseline, the foundational belief 
is that there was brokenness in our world. Genesis you know, uh, 1 through 11. There's brokenness and confusion and division in our world. But God is going to call a people. God is going to call a people. And through this people, all the people of the world will be blessed. It goes to Genesis 12, right? Remember, there's this moment in Genesis 12, after the brokenness in Genesis 1 through 11 and all the division that we see in the Tower of Babel, we then, in Genesis 12, God calls this guy named Abram or Abraham. And Abraham goes into the desert and he's hanging out looking at the stars and probably smoking a hookah. And he's underneath the, Med- the Mediterranean stars. I don't know why I thought that, but it just it hit me at that moment because it's in the Middle East. Anyway, um, and he has this moment where God says, look up, Abraham, look up. And he said, see the stars in the sky, see how numerous they are. I will make your family that numerous. And then he says, and the families, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and through your lineage. Now, this comes immediately after the unraveling of, the, of humanity, of the division of we see in the tower, the story of the Tower of Babel. He's saying, look, there will be this movement and all people will be blessed. And Paul is saying this. He says, I am called as a representative because the whole story, I am called as representative of Jesus because the whole story of Israel told in the Old Testament and in the sacred scriptures has come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And Paul believed that Jesus was the God of Israel who becomes human to embody love and justice and mercy in our midst. He believed that Jesus was made human and that what was human that we are all, and he is the human that we are all called to be, to live after, but we perpetually fail to live up to the expectation, that expectation. And that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can die to an old humanity. This is key through Paul's writings. There's an old humanity. We can die to the old humanity. And then along with Jesus, if we die with Jesus, we can be raised into Jesus' new humanity. There is a new way to live. There is a better way to live. The world of division and strife and sin does not have to have the final word. And he talks all throughout his letters about this. He says, in Jesus' death, he takes, Jesus takes all the selfishness and the brokenness that we perpetuate and that we participate every day. He takes it on himself, and it dies with him on the cross. And in the resurrection, there's now a new way to live. And through the resurrection, Jesus creates something new. Paul continues in his writings. He says this, through him, I was graciously made his representative to call all the nations, Paul sees this as an exclusive and expansive vision. This is not just for Jews. This is for all people of all places in all times. Through him, I was graciously made his representative, call all the nations to faithful obedience for the sake of his name. And that includes you who are in Rome, also called by Jesus the Messiah, who are loved by God. Jesus is the human one. He is God in the flesh. If we want to know what For Paul, if we want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus. And he is now the exalted king, not just of Israel, not just of Israel, but of all the world. A new creation has entered the present. Now, it's sometimes in our modern world, when we look back, we miss the radical words of Paul, or rather how radical the Jesus movement was. So let's just say this. Like, let's say... You live in north-central Turkey, which is where a lot of this is taking place, a region that's called Galatia in Paul's day. And let's say you're hanging out in one of these cities, and you're a day laborer, or you're an immigrant, 
you know, there's this guy in the middle of the city who is um, working on tents. That's what Paul did. He did work with leather and tents. Um, and, and he's constantly, Paul, you just also, he's a black, like he talks constantly and he's a bit, like just a bit abrasive. And, and so Paul's constantly talking about how there's a new king of the world and it's the risen Jesus. And, and this, this community that is rising up around this new king, um, they're meeting in a home. They're meeting in the small church community. Um, and that you were invited. So your imagination's captured, and so you, you go and you want to check out what's going on in this community. So you show up at one of these small Jesus gatherings, and you walk in the door, and what you discover blows your mind, because there are three Jewish families there, and one of them's a really wealthy landowner, and then there's an Egyptian slave, and there's a Roman metal worker, and there's a bunch of homeless people, and, and then there's a person who's Asian, and there's someone who's a Macedonian, and, and you're, you're, you're sitting in this house, and then all of a sudden, Paul comes and he begins to talk. And Paul starts to tell the story of Jesus and the story of humanity, and that we are all such failed versions of who we were created to be. And then he says, despite our failures, despite our brokenness, despite our divisions, that the creator God loved us so much that he came in the person of Jesus and died and rose again. And now there is a new way to live. You have to understand how shocking this moment is to this person who has stumbled into this Jesus community. They've never seen anything like this before. And then he proclaims, in Jesus' death and resurrection, we enter a new creation. We are clothed, which is one of the words Paul uses. We are clothed in a new way of, be, a new way of being. And we become, and this is key, we become one. All these people, this disparate backgrounds, we become one. And Paul is offering an alternative narrative, an alternative story to make sense of our life. Paul's big idea was that the only way to true unity of all humanity, the only way that we bring us all together is through having something that is our center of focus. Or the only way you become one is you have something which is your center of focus. And for Paul, it is, the, it is Jesus who lived, died, and rose again. Now, the Roman Empire at this time, it has its own center of focus. And it was the main narrative that was the rival in Paul's day. And for the Romans, all humanity was to recognize the power and the deity of the emperor. That's their unifying story. And if you were rich and you were powerful, it was an incredible story because it worked out really well for you. But Paul calls all people to unity. And Paul says there is an exclusive center. And for Paul, the only way to unify people is through the story of God who becomes human in Jesus. That's the exclusive, Paul. So while there are clear challenges and boundary lines around what it means to be a follower of Jesus, Paul has this radical, inclusive call where everyone is welcome to the table. And what's amazing is that Paul actually creates ridiculously diverse communities, not only racially and ethically, or ethnically diverse, but also, like I said earlier, they're, they're diverse even around issues of morality. Paul doesn't just talk the talk. He actually lives it. He formed these communities that continue to this very day. Like we, particularly as the table and how we approach belief and how we approach community, we are influenced deeply by the work of Paul. And this is why Paul is going all around the Mediterranean Rim planting these communities because he so deeply believes in the power of what the Jesus movement can do. 
Paul believed that the local church, Paul believed that the local church was the place where God's love and mercy through Jesus and the Spirit unifies people across all social and ethnic boundaries and transforms them into a new kind of human who follows the teachings of Jesus and they live as if he is the true king. They live as if he's a true This is one of the reasons why we care so deeply about making sure the table reflects the places where God has planted us. Like one of the things, if you've been around for a while, you know a couple years ago we made some changes and began to transform some things so that we, because we realized we were not reflecting the communities where God has placed us. For Paul, right, that you cannot be in a city of people from all around the globe and then just look like this homogenous group of people who all like the same type of coffee and latte art, right? For, for, Paul, for Paul to be true followers of Jesus, it had to be a diverse group of people who are gathered around Jesus. So here you have this incredibly diverse group of people who gathered together, and what do they do? What does this group of people do when they get together? They eat a meal. So here you have slaves, and you have landowners, and they're sharing food together. They're sharing a meal together. This doesn't happen anywhere. Nowhere in the ancient world. Table fellowship is of utmost importance. You don't share a meal with someone who would be considered lower than you. The table was the great equalizer. And here you have, here you have in Paul's day, all these ridiculously unique people sharing a meal together. And then after the meal, they would get up and they would go into the courtyard. And often it was in a a wealthier person in the church's home. And so they would get up and they'd go out to the courtyard. In the courtyard, there'd be some type of pool or some type of water. And and, and there would be someone new who wanted to make allegiance to King Jesus. And then that person would be baptized into the water. And then when they'd come out, they would celebrate this person who had nothing else in common with them. They would celebrate them as family. They were one. It's powerful. They are one in Christ. And this was the initiation symbol into these communities. Paul says this. He said, So in the Messiah Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in the Messiah have clothed yourself with the Messiah. And Paul develops in his numerous teachings the image of going into the water is like being immersed into the story of Jesus. And so in that emergent, you are being submerged into Jesus' death. And as you come up out of the water, you are being raised to new life. This is why we believe in, in baptism here at the table. This is why we, when we have a baptism service, it is a ridiculously crazy celebration because someone is making the proclamation that I am dying to the old and I am being raised into the new humanity and that we are proclaiming they are family. And that when you are baptized, Paul shows that when you are baptized, what's true of Jesus is now true of you. When you are baptized, what's true of Jesus is now true of you. Paul says it this way. There is neither, there is a new human family, and there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. I mean, sorry, neither Jew nor Greek. Sorry, I've got to actually read what's on it and not quote something I know out of my head. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Paul says this in multiple places, some slight iteration of this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in the Messiah. If you belong to the Messiah, then you are all Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise, that promise made long ago under the stars in the desert. Can you imagine anything more countercultural in the ancient world world 
Because as they come out of the water, as they eat a meal together, the proclamation is these people who have nothing else in common are brothers and sisters. You know that the early Christian communities went around calling each other brother and sister. Actually, the, the tradition I grew up in, they wanted to continue that on, but it just sounds really odd in the modern day. But they called everyone like Brother Lum and Sister So-and-so. Some of you probably grew up in similar traditions, right? The reason that they did that, as weird as it sounds to our modern ears, is because that's how the early church referred to each other. Because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. All the other things that separated and divided them drop away and they are united. They become family in Christ. This is the most audacious social project anyone had ever attempted in the first century. Here's how Scott McKnight, a New Testament scholar, talks about it. He says this, Paul made sure that the earliest Christian churches were made up of people from all over the social map. They formed a fellowship of difference, full of people who were, certainly did not agree on very much, except that life in the Roman cities were dirty and difficult. And this was the heart of Paul's mission, to create a fellowship of differences and difference, a mixture of people from all across the spectrum. He believed that the church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing different people to the same table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. If we said amen in the church, that would be a good place to say amen. Anyone? Amen? Paul believed that the church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing people together to share a meal, and to be family. And baptism was one of the key symbols because the rich Jewish landowner got baptized and then the Egyptian slave got baptized and the homeless Egyptian got baptized. Everyone got baptized in the same water and became one. Now everyone had sins that needed to be forgiven. Everyone was given the same gift of life. And when they gathered to sing about Jesus and eat at the table together, all the things that made them different outside of the family of Jesus, whether it was social boundaries or ethnic boundaries or power differentials, all of those things fell away. And so we live 2,000 years later in this heritage. And whether you love Paul or you hate Paul, and if you don't like Paul, you have good reason. Paul makes himself difficult to like. We are a beneficiary of this viral movement of churches that Paul started 2,000 years ago. And the things that we do today, whether it be baptism or table fellowship, are directly influenced by the way that Paul developed this community. And these Jesus gatherings always included a meal together that culminated in the breaking of bread and the cup, which we do every week, because in the breaking of bread and the cup, we continue to tell the Jesus story. And we believe that the bread and the wine are a means of grace, and that, that by accepting them, by taking them, you are inviting Jesus into your life. That you are taking a step towards Jesus. It was the retelling of the Jesus story that happens for Paul and that continues to happen to us, that happens for us. Paul says it this way. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in one loaf. It's one of the reasons we have one loaf. I will have a different explanation if we ever grow and can't have one loaf. But for right now, right? That, 
That's the reason we have one loaf, right? We believe that we take all come forward. We are all invited to come and to partake of this one loaf and that we, we are reminded that we are one in Christ. So when we eat these symbols, we are ingesting the story of God into our life. We are ingesting grace into our lives. And as we eat and drink and retell the story of Jesus, his presence is here with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have, who have died with him, we have been raised from the dead with him, and we are one in Christ. There's a historian who isn't even a Jesus follower, the best I know, um, but he's a historian of the ancient Near East. He says this, Paul saw these early Christian rituals, baptism and communion, as creating a new, a key social achievement to bring together many people into one body and construct a new form of solid, corporate solidarity. Both rituals symbolize and reinforce a worldview in which death and the death and resurrection of Jesus are the central events in a cosmic story. They give meaning to the world and at the same time embody the central theme of the early Christian society, a, community, a communal solidarity in Christ that transcends all other socioeconomic distinctions. That might have been the spirit right there. If you won't say amen, what is it? The rocks will cry out? <laughs> now you should pay attention. This was revolutionary. This is revolutionary in Paul's day, but let's be honest, this is revolutionary in our day. It seems that we continue to find ways to pull ourselves apart, to continue to divide ourselves. And Paul says, look, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a new humanity. Colossians 3 says it this way. You have all put on the new humanity which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew, or there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. But the Messiah is all and is in all. Now we should note, because this gets a little sticky, Paul is not trying to create uniformity. Paul is not trying to create uniformity. There's, there was incredible diversity in these early churches. And, and in fact, they have some gigantic fights that almost rips the early church apart. And what they often did is they lived in the space of compromise because they decided that they, to keep Jesus Christ crucified and risen as their center. And what Paul, and what Paul does is he creates space for immense amounts of cultural diversity and ethnic diversity, and also diversity around issues of morality, right? Romans 14 and 15. Have you read Romans 14 and 15? I mean, this is a, this is a passage about an incredibly, how do, we, how do we stay together in community when there are disputable matters that we disagree about? We had an entire sermon preached um, a couple years ago about this, because what's happening in Romans 14 is that there are people who are eating meat that has been offered to idols, Essentially, essentially what's happening is there are people eating demon-possessed meat. And, and, and some of the Christians are saying, dude, it's cheap because it's meat offered to idols and they have it, it's on special at the, the community like forklift or whatever down the street. I don't know what it would be. The, the, the warehouse down the street. And other Christians, so some of them are saying, look, it doesn't matter. Demons have no power because we serve the risen Lord. It's cheap meat. Other people are like, you cannot eat demon-possessed meat. That's a really big deal. Like, in that day, that's a huge, huge issue. And Paul says this. He says, Romans 14, 10 through 12. 
Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you pass judgment on your brother or your sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or your sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now this passage, this passage guides how we approach a lot of things at the table. We've said from the beginning that we have conversations instead of policies. If you go to our intro to the table class or making the table home, that's like a refrain you'll hear over and over again. Because what we're trying to figure out is a way to hold people together that disagree on really big issues. One of the, um, I still remember we did an infant baptism. We do both, um, primarily we do dedications at the table, but we also, if a, a family requests it, we'll do an infant baptism. Well, if you know, infant baptism is a really divisive issue, and someone came up to me afterwards, and they were ready to fight. And, and I just said, look, you're right. There is a good case to be made against infant baptism. In fact, personally, I am kind of in your camp. But you also need to know that for most of church history, most people have practiced infant baptisms except the Anabaptists, and everyone hated and killed them because of their rejection of infant baptism, partially. And, and most even modern-day Christians practice infant baptism. So you may be right. But I just need you to know, like, a lot of church history is against you. For us at the table, for us at the table, Everyone has a voice if they have the humility to admit they might be wrong. That's the key. And that's, I always try to lead with the utmost, like, I don't always know that I'm right, but I try to do the best that I know how to what God calls me to do. There's this great moment. Actually, a, a, there's a fight over uh, who gets included in Acts 15. It's in the early church. It's over circumcision. And as you can imagine, telling new Jesus followers that they have to have a little snip before they can follow, I mean, male followers of Jesus, they need to have a little procedure before they can become a Jesus follower, hurt evangelism. And so they had this gigantic fight. They had this gigantic fight, and at the end, they walk away with a compromise that no one was particularly happy with. And then, and then the passage says, this is the Bible, this is in Acts 15. The Bible says this, they did what they thought was right according to the Spirit. It, it, there's not like a bombastic claim, like they did what was right according to the Spirit. No, they did what they thought was right according to the Spirit. Now, this is easy to talk about in, in like ivory towers, but how does it look when the rubber meets the road? Now, when we planned the table four years ago, 75% of the people we met with wanted to talk about LGBT inclusion. Right? They wanted to, and, and it was on both sides, the left and the right, conservatives and liberals. And everyone wanted to put us in a box. Are you affirming or are you non-affirming? Are you conservative or liberal? And, and what bothered me most is that people on both sides of the argument would use language very similar to, why would you want to create space for them? And we decided from the day we planted that we were not going to play those games because Paul didn't play those games. And what we know is that it's an incredibly complex conversation and there are people on both sides of the argument. And if you get in front of me and you make a case around LGBT inclusion, you, make, you lay it out, I'm like, wow, you're right. And then you come on the other side in a more conservative view, and I'm like, you're right. And I, I'm like, they both, they both make such powerful points. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do when there's a situation that's, not, that's academic but involves people? Jesus always sides with people. 
Jesus always sides with people. And so from the beginning of our church, we never had a policy in regards to same-sex relations, but instead we had conversations. But, but, we have said from the beginning that all people who seek to follow Jesus are welcome at God's table. And they are welcome into the waters of baptism. And they are welcome to lead, not as second-class citizens, but as family. This is non-negotiable. There are other areas, though, like marriage, where we disagree in those areas. And like Paul in Romans 14, we allow individual conscience to guide our choices. One of my favorite, one of my favorite verses, like I said, is this idea where, where they come out and they're like, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is, but we can walk together in spite of our disagreements. And we won't get everything right, but we rest in the assurance that we are doing the best based upon what we believe the calling that Jesus has given us. Paul says to us, stop focusing on the margins. Instead, focus on what brings us together. Focus on the center. Because we are called into a new humanity, a messy humanity of people who are seeking to follow Jesus in community in spite of our differences. Because we are united through the water and the baptism and through the bread and wine. And to both of those, we will always welcome everyone, everyone who wants to follow Jesus. And when we live in this way, it has the power to have a radical impact on a world that is watching. The Jesus movement invites us into a community of differences where we can walk together and model to a world that is watching, model to a world that people who disagree with one another on big issues can be family and walk together. We can be a community of hospitality, a community of people from all different ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds, a community that cares for the poor, a community that offers safety and welcome to the immigrant, and a community that practices generosity in both finances and spirit. And what would it look like if we truly recovered this amazing vision that unified the early church? So as we move forward, Paul challenges us to figure out how we honor the differences but yet call us to something bigger. Call us to something bigger that is beyond all the differences that we have identified as the most important. And Paul did this, and there's a reason why his letters become recognized as Scripture, as God's Word, because this is the human story, and this is the challenge that every single one of us is called into, not only in the first century, but sitting here in the 21st century. And here's the word that I want to leave you with. The risen Jesus is the hope of the world. The risen Jesus is the human embodiment of God's love for you despite your worst failures and sins. Jesus makes us into a new humanity. And as we step into the waters of baptism and gather around the bread and the cup, we worship the risen Lord as one. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Paul's words. We thank you for the space to wrestle with his words. And I pray that as a community of people who come from so many different backgrounds, that you would continue to use the words of Paul and the words of Jesus to model for us how we can live together and walk together.
even when we disagree. In Jesus' name, amen.